0: And I found out that I was the first African American graduate with honors. And for me, that recognition in and of itself didn't do a lot, but it was, it changed me at the core because I went through three years of law school not knowing whether I belonged or not knowing whether or not I could compete. And then the fact that we had anonymous grading and I got this honor. It gave me the kind of confidence that no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter where you start, that I actually could compete with some of the smartest, greatest minds in the world. So that was really life changing in and of itself. Very proud of the accomplishment and it just changed my life, frankly.
1: That was Max Siegel, CEO of USA Track and Field, talking about how he's made history by demonstrating excellence. Driving change and investing in exposure opportunities for diverse talent in the sports, entertainment, and legal industry. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Good afternoon, Max, and thank you for joining us on the 2024 Black History Month episode of The Freedom Forum. As you know, This is a huge year for Indianapolis with all the sports and major events occurring in our city. And I really wanted to speak with folks who are part of the engine behind some of Indy's premier sports organizations and events. So thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And while I know you as a fellow attorney in the city and the father of one of my son's high school friends, I must admit, I really had no idea all the stuff that you were into with sports and entertainment and media mogul. You're really a media mogul. I didn't know that. And so you've truly made history in so many different capacities. But before we get started discussing all of that, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background and any other factors that have led to you becoming an attorney, a serial entrepreneur and business owner, and the CEO of USA Track and Field.
0: As I tell many, many, many people, I'm a recovering lawyer. You're a real <laughs> lawyer. But I'm a proud graduate from Indianapolis Public School System. I grew up here in Indianapolis. My parents met. My father was a record executive. My mother was a singer from Indianapolis. Unfortunately, uh, they divorced early. So I moved out west. Uh, and when my father passed away, came back to Indianapolis. So for me, Coming back, Forest Manor, graduated from Northwest High School. I didn't really have a clear vision as to where I wanted to go. But what I knew was having seen a few different things in sports and entertainment was I wanted a better life for myself. So I went on to Notre Dame, uh, was recruited to play baseball, got an academic scholarship to Notre Dame. And when I graduated, like many of my friends whose parents didn't go to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I interviewed for jobs, got hired at General Motors, and a friend of mine basically said to me that she thought I had more to offer and saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. So I applied to law school and I figured, you know, I love people. uh, I love solving problems. The law seemed to be everywhere and went back to Notre Dame. So Notre Dame was a great experience for me in law school because I was there with purpose. And from there, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to meet Jack Swarbrick, who was uh, the hiring partner at Baker and Daniels at the time, retiring athletic director at Notre Dame right now, who hired me into the sports and entertainment group and kind of launched my career there.
1: So you've participated in a variety of business organizations in your career. And we'll briefly mention a couple of those during your intro. But I want to ask you to reminisce (laughs) when you were a time that you weren't the Max Siegel that you are today, not with all the success and the reputation, when you were just starting off in your career path what did you aspire to do and were you aware of all the career opportunities that were available to you and when did you realize that you had a unique opportunity to lead and influence in a way that truly has made you exceptional in multiple business industries including sports entertainment and law
0: thank you for that compliment i don't see myself that way but the reality of the situation is for me My younger sister, we grew up in a very, very dysfunctional household. And my motivation early on was to try to take care of her and get into a more stable place. And my sister uh, wound up in radio down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so I literally was just trying to graduate from law school. And she had a good friend of hers that she said needed an attorney who was a gospel music singer. And at the time, I knew nothing about gospel music. And I told my sister, well, I'm actually not an attorney. I'm a law student. So as I went down to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, and I met John P. Key, who's a huge gospel singer and at the time he was a young up-and-coming artist on a record label from Indianapolis, he trusted me, you know, and so we got to know each other. It was a year before I did any work for him, wound up orchestrating the largest deal in the history of gospel music, which launched my career. Before that, I had no idea what the opportunities were, and frankly, being an attorney in Indianapolis, especially a young attorney, I was not considered a quote-unquote entertainment lawyer. You know, at that time, you had to either be in New York, Nashville, or Los Angeles. And so, uh, no, I didn't know. But but what I quickly found out was that many, many high-profile people at the core of what you can do to help them, number one, you have to have some kind of skill to make their life or their professional life better. And number two, they have to trust you. So, you know, my journey was not one that I had plotted out or that I knew what I was going to get myself into, but I just was led by my passion and uh, had great people who invested in me.
1: You know, everybody doesn't have the benefit. I've had that same experience. Now, clearly you were uh, way more educated than me because you at least knew about law school. I went to law school way late in my career because just had people provide opportunities and say, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? So in addition to you being part of multiple industries, you just mentioned you've had success in many areas of business, including as an investor As an executive leader, as a lawyer, you mentioned, as an employee and a worker, I assume, (laughs) and likely everything in between, because of that, have the most vast business experience of so many of the guests and so many of my esteemed guests that I've had the opportunity to speak with. And so with that kind of background and having the vantage point of being a diverse man, What do you believe are some of the unique challenges faced by diverse men in business settings in Indiana and, quite frankly, across the country, whether in private practice or corporations, organizations or government? And then what can employers do to address some of these issues so that diverse men really feel like they are included and valued and accepted for leadership and executive advancement opportunities, particularly in corporate business?
0: I think the first thing for me is educating diverse people in general about the opportunities that we don't even know exist. Second of all, I think what is really challenging is access. Most of the jobs that I was fortunate enough to get along my career journey were based on some relationship. And when I look back on it, happened to be in the right place at the right time. And so what I've tried to do my entire professional career is be intentional and deliberate to educate people those who don't know that there are many talented people in our community that were out there. But it's interesting because you have to manage your brand. You also have to have the skill to make a difference. There are a lot of politics that from whether a company has the cultural competence to deal with a diverse staff or not. And so for me, there are many challenges. And frankly, I have found along the way that there's typically a sense that you may not be as qualified, knowledgeable, or effective as your counterparts. So, you know, I've always tried to let my work speak for itself, but the reality of the situation is companies that are looking for diverse talent. So I'll say this. When I was fortunate enough to become the chief executive officer at USA Track and Field, we had the most diverse athletes in the entire Olympic movement. But out of 50 national governing bodies right now, my chief operating officer, Renee Washington, African-American female attorney that I hired, with no sports background, we had two black males in the company, two or three minority females and that was it. And so while the athletes were diverse, the staff was not. So over the course of two or three years, we were very focused and deliberate. We went out with young people who didn't have the skill set and we put them in the pipeline to train them. Then we went to other industries to find people that had transferable skills but may not have any experience in sports and we hired them. We've been fortunate over the last three Olympic Games and World Championships to have the most athletic financial success in the history of the organization. I directly attribute it to the diversity of our staff. And so for me, I try to use that as proof of concept for those who don't necessarily think, but I think it's great for business. But you know, to those who want to find out, I think personally, you have to expand your network. I'm often surprised at how many non-minority people say to me that they don't know where to find qualified minority candidates. So developing a network, being intentional, and getting out of the comfort
1: zone to go to find and recruit talent where you
0: may not go when you get
1: off work. Absolutely. And I think it's very important that you indicate the proof of concept, right? Because for you and your organization, you've been able to see that proof of concept readily Quickly, I would say, and maybe that's not true. It probably doesn't feel like that when you're in it. But for some of these larger organizations, that's part of the challenge that is hard for them to quantitate the proof of concept as readily. And therefore, they struggle with making that the business case for continuing to hire diverse talent over time. Tell us about the longevity that may be needed to truly see the true benefits of the proof of concept or the business case for diversity.
0: For me, I've been fortunate to be in the sports and entertainment industries my entire career. Not only is it a fascinating global and complicated business, but it's such, an, it's such a powerful platform to impact culture. And so through sports and through entertainment, I was fortunate enough to be the president of & Her Incorporated. First person of color, hired at that organization in 30 years, 600 employees, big brand. And through my experience and the relationships I had developed, the chairman of NASCAR asked me nearly 20 years ago to help them diversify the sport. They had no drivers of color, no pit crew members to speak of. But I think that the current leadership who are young executives saw – The importance and the need to be diverse and appeal to a broader demographic. Bubba Wallace, Kyle Larson, Daniel Suarez, seventy crew members later, that all came through our organization, Rev Racing. That took fifteen to twenty years, you know. And so now we get to celebrate the profile, and we have more executives, and there's a lot of work to be done. But all along the way, you know, people in our community question NASCAR's commitment. Question, frustrated as I was, that you know we didn't make the progress that we would like quicker. But to your point, I think now, you know, we're starting to see more participation for fans, you know, sponsors are more engaged in it, but it didn't happen overnight. So for those who want to see an immediate return, you may not. But I think the long-term impact of having, you know, a diverse and inclusive staff and organization, it's there.
1: I want to get back to Rev Racing, because you've already told me something I didn't know. But before we leave this topic, I want to ask you about being an authentic, diverse leader, right? Particularly in organizations and industries where you are the first diverse person, you are the first diverse leader. And so how necessary is transparency and authenticity in order to truly effectuate some of these real changes that we're talking about with regard to employee fairness and equity, belonging, representation, and advancement? And how have you personally navigated your own authenticity in some of these diverse organizations that we're speaking about?
0: I think out of naivety at first being authentic, you know, you kind of refine your approach and you, over the course of your career, you understand who your audience is. And, you know, I always go into situations with what I want the outcome to possibly be. But what I found out really accidentally is if you invest in other individuals and you have an impact and, you know, there's something positive about your presence in their life, as selfish as that is, they're more likely to open up and let the guard down and engage in dialogue where you can educate, right? Authenticity, I think, is critically important. You know, you and I have served in a number of leadership capacities and on the board of whether it's our kids' school or anything else. And I think it's important – To bring a different perspective to the conversation, as people of color, we are often, often required to adapt, to be able to fit in and navigate an environment that, you know, is normal for everyone else, but not for us. And I often ask my peers and my colleagues, how would you function if I took you and dropped you in a neighborhood I grew up in? So this whole thing about cultural competence and really kind of understanding, you know, how to make an environment inclusive is, is a critical one. But to your point, I think that, you know, what I've tried to do professionally is focus on quality work, substance, and outcome when it comes to what I'm actually there to do. And I think when you are superior or excellent in that area, you get a little bit more of a license to have discussions about other things. So I, I, I like to lead with the, you know, professional excellence but never compromise who I am, my values, and I think it's a a part of my DNA, and I don't really see it as an obligation. It's who I am to educate and try to create more opportunities.
1: Yeah, recognizing that we are the minority, that we are surrounded or in environments where you're surrounded by people who are not like you and do not necessarily have opportunities to be exposed to you, right, or people like you. So you talked about being authentic, leading authentically. I want to go back a bit again because you mentioned law school as being, you know, a real pivotal point point, really accelerating your career advancement and exposure to so many different facets of business. And I want to recognize that I learned that you made history as the first African-American student at Notre Dame Law School to graduate with honors. That's pretty exceptional.
0: It was overwhelming for a couple of reasons. When I went back to law school, I went back and I said, listen, I want to be a really great professional. I had three years off and I went with a focus, not knowing what to expect, no lawyers in my family. And so I just approached it, treating it as a job. It was life-changing for me in that when I first went there, the dean of the law school gave all of the 1Ls a talk, you're all unique and you can make a unique contribution to society. We build Maseratis here and just know that your journey, you can impact culture. And so I walked away partially encouraged, but the pessimistic skeptical side of me is like, ah, same speech 32 years. What I didn't know when I went to law school was grading was anonymous and I was quite intimidated to be there. And so I just focused like a job. And so I went to work and you know fortunately excelled academically and between my last final and graduation is a week and i found out that i was the first african american graduate with honors and for me that recognition in and of itself didn't do a lot but it was it changed me at the core because i went through 3 years of law school not knowing whether i belonged or not knowing whether or not i could compete And then the fact that we had anonymous grading and I got this honor, it gave me the kind of confidence that no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter where you start, that I actually could compete with some of the smartest, greatest minds in the world. So that was really life-changing in and of itself. Very proud of the accomplishment. And it just changed my life, frankly.
1: You mentioned law school again, how or what are some of the greatest lessons you learned as a law student or in private practice that you think you really carried with you in all of your business ventures.
0: First and foremost, I think that I learned that learning is a lifelong journey. I think that law school more than anything else taught me how to think and solve problems and approach things both. I mean, you know, as an advocate, you're passionate about things, but you also have to be pragmatic. You know, you have to be strategic things change and evolve uh, and people rely on you for your advice and counsel and you impact them. But even more importantly than that, my law school education was almost like pledging for fraternity or sorority or also in boot camp. You know, it transforms you in a way that I learn to appreciate the process of growth. You're reading those cases, you don't know what they mean. By the time you get out of law school and you're sitting for the bar, it's like, oh, that all made sense. And so one of the things that I I try to practice and you have to be make a conscious effort to do that, at least I do, is saying, hey, I may not understand what's going on now. I'm kind of going to embrace the process. And as I go through it and I get out of it, I like to look back and say, what should I have learned from it? And what did I learn from what I've been going through?
1: I can absolutely attest to law school makes you appreciate the process of learning and truly knowing you're always learning. Right. And quite frankly, even in the context of diversity, I talk about it all the time that for me, diversity is often just an opportunity to learn about someone else or something else that I would have otherwise never known, never been exposed to. And for me, that's intriguing. It speaks to that point of curiosity that I have. And particularly about people. You mentioned I like people. I enjoy being around people. And I've learned for me, that's been a strength as a lawyer. Absolutely. Now it's time for a break.
0: Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at insideindianabusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're back with Max Siegel, CEO of USA Track and Field, on this 2024 Black History Month episode of the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. You mentioned being in the music industry and the gospel music industry. You didn't mention, though, that you also made some history there or or you actually did. You said you had the biggest deal ever in gospel music history, but you also served as a vice president at Sony and BMG, which, again, and this is out in New York. So this is kind of you transitioning back and forth, which, again. I didn't appreciate or know any of this before I kind of did this research on you. So it's been very intriguing. But one thing I want you to tell us is in all of these different business ventures and opportunities, what have you learned about yourself and about business, particularly when working as an entrepreneur and a business owner as compared to an executive in a large corporation and learning some of those things? What inspired you to kind of make the transition between the different facets, whether it was music or law or entertainment?
0: So a couple of things. One is from a career development standpoint, I've always been motivated by improving my skills, getting more experience. What I found out that we talk about transferable skills and the reality of the situation is even with your background, you know, intellectual property, licensing and copyright and trademark is depending on the industry, the skill is pretty much the same and you're trying to monetize that. So, for me, in terms of w- my career journey and development, I'd either look for something where I can stretch and grow from a skill standpoint or run an organization and get more experience. But let me tell you first- So, what I actually learned about myself through my career journey is that I found out what my why was. I heard a long time ago, when you know your why, you can endure anyhow. And if you have a why, you get up and go to work with some more passion. And so, for me, I love the, you know, I'm intellectually curious, right? So, the businesses and the industries, I get to be creative. I get to do sponsorship deals, manage a relationship you know, with our media partners, you know, produce and create things. So all of those elements in terms of what stimulates me intellectually. But the most important thing for me was I've been driven by the same thing that I have when I was younger. And that's, can I make my community, my world, my, you know, wherever I am a better place? And how do I impact people? And I really kind of stumbled into the sports and entertainment career. But there's one story that I tell about the impact Sport in general. And that was when I took this new job. USA Track and Field is a national governing body for the sport in the States. We get the most visibility around the Olympics. Most of the time, people don't even know what we do. So, World Athletics is our global governing body, which has 217 countries. It was a 100 year anniversary, and the United States was a founding member. So, I had no idea. Came back to Indianapolis. I'm on the job two weeks, and my board of directors said, Hey, You have to go represent the U.S. in Monaco, where the headquarters is, to accept an award. So I jump on a plane. I land in Nice, France. I have the military pull me off the plane, put me in a helicopter, take me to Monaco, put me in a motorcade, go to the palace. I'm sitting next to Prince Albert of Monaco. Every prime minister, minister of sport, they're all coming to me because the United States is the number one team in the world. Okay. The United States is the market that everyone wants to understand. And I was just completely fascinated and overwhelmed because I didn't know what I was getting into. But as I started to talk to, whether it was the minister of the sport or the prime minister or Prince Albert, I realized that sport was a unifier. Sport was woven into the fabric of government and culture. And sport was a way that people dealt with whether it were political issues, bringing people together. So what I learned about myself there was that, again, that we all have something to contribute, right? The folks that I talked to, they didn't care about my background. You know, they didn't care. It it was just, you know, what I represented. So having a why and a purpose for everything that you're doing, continuing to learn and grow, and also have found that the why keeps you strong. The opportunities and the positions that I have have been blessings, but they come with a lot of adversity and stress and drama that people do see and don't see. So you really have to be surrounded by people you trust and you know, and that support you and you got to stay grounded and focused. But uh, just staying on the mission.
1: Can we talk about that a little bit? Because you are the pinnacle of success. But I know just because I've lived long enough to know, my granddad said, if it hasn't happened to you, keep on living, right? That adversity does come and every day is not the great day and every deal doesn't come through and every client isn't always happy and et cetera, et cetera. So when you deal with adversity and not, you know, whatever form that takes, how do you keep your head straight, keep positive, particularly when, I mean, we, you and I have had long enough to just be in career where you've kind of determined, you know, I feel pretty confident. I'm good at what I do. Every day may not be a good day, but overall, I feel pretty strong. But when you're younger. And you haven't quite developed that confidence, right? You don't know yet or you haven't convinced yourself yet that I'm truly good at what I do or you're still kind of earlier in that learning curve. How do you fight through those challenging days when, you know, it's not just you doubting yourself, but you're getting direct feedback from a supervisor or a mentor that says, no, you're not stepping up to the plate or you're not managing up to expectations. How do you deal with that?
0: I have three things I rely on, faith, my family, and picking friends very carefully. We do not accomplish anything significant on our own. It takes, you know, the whole, it takes a village, it takes a team. I can tell you right now, I would not be where I am if it weren't for my family, my faith, and my friends. But in that, you got to be careful who you surround yourself with. Because to your point, if you allow someone else to speak into you and impact your self-confidence or your esteem and view, that's really dangerous. So I, I've always tried to strike the balance between, you know, I love feedback. Um, I think the only way that you get better is if you get feedback good, bad, or indifferent. But at the same time, it took me a few years to learn that everybody's not motivated out of pureness. So some of the feedback, if you're listening to and it's, and it's for selfish reasons, may get you off course. And so that's why I think it's important to understand that there it's for me, that, you know, God is orchestrating a lot of things, but, and, and through the tough times, your families are, is usually going to be there through thick and thin. Right. And then if you need some feedback for people to kind of lift you up or to course correct and keep you focused, friends are really, really good for that. And I tell my kids all the time, you know, if you go through life and you have two or three good, good, good friends, you're lucky, but having a lot of faith, Pouring into my family and surrounding myself with a few good friends kind of gets me through the tough times.
1: I appreciate that because even on this podcast, I would assert that, you know, we do a lot of focus on the positives. And and I do want folks to know that every successful person that's been on here or otherwise has tough days too, right? Like that's a real thing. That's what makes you a leader is being able to weather those storms and keep on marching forward. So we talked a bit previously about your time at NASCAR. And I want to circle back around at that. You were president of global operations at Dale Earnhardt. You mentioned that. And it seems around that time or during that time, you became the owner of Rev Racing. You mentioned that briefly, but please tell us about Rev Racing, some of its successes and why it's been important for you to kind of make sure that there is diversity in this sport long before folks like more recently, Jimmy McMillan, a great dear friend and mentor of mine has been at IMS. Tell us about how Rev Racing started and your mission. I represented the late Reggie White.
0: Hall of Fame football player, and he retired in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was his lawyer and agent, and knew Coach Joe Gibbs, who had a race team. You know, we had shopped him around when he's a free agent, met Eddie DeBarlow, and Reggie started, Reggie was all about helping people as well. And so, Reggie was down in Charlotte, and he started to talk about what he saw as tremendous opportunities for women and people of color in NASCAR. And I jokingly said, listen, I'm a black guy with a Jewish name. There are no opportunities for women and people of color. Uh, He's like, you got to check it out. So when I got down to the sport, you know, growing up here in Indianapolis, the brickyard, you know, the 500, motorsports was not a foreign concept. But when I got down there, I saw it was so fascinating. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And the first time I walked into the Daytona 500 with 300,000 people and the excitement and learned about the industry I was hooked on the sport, the business of the sport. But when I looked around, what was fascinating was it was generational. Someone's great-grandfather raced, and their grandfather raced, and their father raced. And you look around the track, and you see families, and you see all these brands. And so to me, I felt like it was a missed opportunity. My mother-in-law was also the head of development at Morehouse. And my wife went to Spelman. So we would go on the college tour, and i talked talk to these kids. They had no idea. They had no idea that you could be a race engineer and make $300,000. They had no idea when I go to high school is that you can be a car chief or a mechanic and make 150,000 or go over the wall. And so I realized that the only way to be able to control who actually had access was to be an owner. You know, I could lean in and I could try to convince someone to make a hire if I wanted to, but if I absolutely wanted to make a difference and I had to do it, the other thing that we looked at was what was the most authentic way to get credibility in industry. And so I started by buying a small race team and what all the other owners did, you know, race at the weekly level and the late model level. It's almost like the minor leagues. And it took about five years. And Kyle Larson, who's a Cup Series championship, Japanese-American, was the first driver I won a championship with. And then we went out to recruit at the HBCUs and at the high schools. And now we're in the colleges for the pit crew members. So there was one black pit crew member, Rocco In NASCAR at the time, we've had 70 crew members, African American female, you know, just diverse that have gone through the ref racing crew member development program that are now working full time in the sport. And so for me, I am just so proud when I walk down before a race and I see, I can see the change. Or when I, Brandon Thompson, who is the chief diversity officer for NASCAR, was an intern for me, you know, and he's affecting policy and he has credibility. And so for me, I couldn't be more proud of it. But there was a time, you know, when my wife and I invested in it and it takes a lot of resources and people aren't running to support you. And many of the people that I talked to, even in our own community, didn't understand what it was I was doing or why they should invest. So, again, it was one of those times where we had to look each other and say, why are we actually doing this? So we've had tremendous success. Like I said, Bubba Wallace has come through, Daniel Suarez, who's a champion, Kyle Larson, Nick Sanchez, who drives for me now, has been a champion. And so I'm really, really proud of that. But what's even more important is that just this past weekend, I didn't get to go because I was at our Olympic marathon trials, NASCAR hosts its annual diversity awards. And Jefferson Hodges, who is my competition director, who is from Virginia, the farthest thing from a diverse person at all, after all these years, he won the Industry Ambassador Award for all his contribution. He came to work. He is one of the team leaders for Penske Cup Series team. And the first thing he did was thank us for opening his eyes and giving him the opportunity to contribute. And it meant so much to me because now he's is an ambassador and he's a part of the change. But uh, And it all started at Rev Racing.
1: Man, that is a fascinating history and not just history. It continues, right? You're still continuing to make impact and make change in the racing industry and obviously require you to have some foresight and some insight into the industry and what it could be if somebody just dedicated themselves to making that change. So let's also talk about your time at USA Track and Field. You became the fourth CEO of USA Track and Field, and you've been there for 15 years or so, and just recently had a contract extension that is going to make sure you remain in place for the next five years until 2028. So that's very impressive. So like Mel Rains, who I talked to last month, you know, so many people, I'm sure, admire your position, want to have your job, but really don't know what that entails. So tell us, what does your job, your day-to-day job entail, and how are you able to influence your team and continue to make some of the positive change for the USA Track and Field organization that you've mentioned about making in the racing industry?
0: My Opportunity to lead this organization was almost full circle. So when I joined Baker and Daniels, Jack Swarbrick represented uh, USA Gymnastics, swimming, canoe, kayak, diving, swimming. And as an associate, I got exposed to it and been around the Olympic movement. As my career progressed, probably six years before I was asked to join uh, USA Track and Field, I was on the USA Swimming Foundation board. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was just fascinated that the athletes were – Some of the greatest in the world, but the organization was pretty stagnant. So after being on that board and I was involved in NASCAR, I was a bit frustrated. It's a unique and complex organization. And I mentioned to the board chair, I was like, I I don't really know. You know, I only have so many hours in a day. So I'm not really sure I'm going to volunteer my time because we weren't making a lot of progress. And I said, look, there are some fundamental things that we're missing with this amazing platform. So the short version of the story is over the couple years, the CEO was removed in 2010 and probably two years, the organization didn't have a leader. So I was asked to take over and we just did some basic blocking and tackling. And I felt like it was the first opportunity I could take everything I learned in my career and, you know, really uh, put it into practice and built a really strong team, evaluated the organization. We had not had a new sponsor for like 11 years, since the two CEOs before, the organization was not growing. And so what we started to do is build an infrastructure and operationally structure the organization to achieve the mission. So USA Track Fields national governing body for Olympic sport and running. So New York, Boston, LA Marathon, we sanction all those. A lot of people don't know, 8,000 events in the US we sanction. 60 championships. We send out 16 teams a year internationally to compete on behalf of the country. We're cradle to grave. So anything from junior Olympics all the way up to master's athletes and the Olympians that you see you know, as our most high profile. We have coaches education. We have leadership programs in the youth space. We develop officials in the country. We manage coaches. So it's a complex organization. We have about 140,000 members of the organization, 56 associations across the United States that are all charged with growing the sport, filling a competitive team, getting the public engaged in it. And I also chaired the Global Marketing Commission for 217 countries. And now I'm the chair of our region, which is called NACAC, North America, Central America, and the Caribbean, their marketing commission. And so it's my responsibility to grow and engage and reposition a sport globally and in the region. So I find myself on the road 70% of the time. We were just talking before the show started. I went from New York, I was in Orlando, I go to Paris tomorrow for a site visit. I'm back for a day, I go to New York for our Millrose games, you know, and then I'm in Scotland for indoor championships. And so for me, it's really complex. The only way to get that done is to assemble a really, really, really great team. You know, I have a pretty big staff in LA, New York and here, but I have great direct reports. I have the most amazing chief operating officer around, but, you know, having a strategic vision- Having a real tactical plan, having alignment and having clear goals for everyone where they know why they do it, what their function is, how it contributes to the business. So I would say I joke all the time that I'm a planner. I'm strategic, but I'm spontaneous. No morning goes the way that I think it is when I wake up. So I try to steal those first couple hours for the phone rings for myself. But, you know, it's an incredible honor to be there, but it's also um, a very emotionally draining organization to lead because we have we have such diverse constituents. So and then to be honest, since we're on the topic, I think you get judged a lot differently as a black leader than my other colleagues.
1: So you mentioned Paris. Let's talk about it. We know that 2024 Paris Olympics are occurring this summer and in preparation for Paris, USA Track and Field. So your organization is hosting multiple Olympic trials around the country. You just mentioned being at one of the marathons to determine the team members that will represent the U.S. in the various sports in Paris. And we're excited that Indianapolis will host the Olympic swimming trials, right, in mid-June. So tell us, for those who may not know or appreciate What you're excited about, about Paris this year and the Olympic trials that will be held here and around the country leading up to Paris. And what specifically is important for our statewide and local community to know about the Olympic trials that'll be held here in Indy and what special Indy specific or who's your hospitality events or information should, you know, we be aware of as Indy goes on the global stage again this year.
0: One of the things that I take a lot of pride in is we have a number of governing bodies here, but USA Gymnastics is right here in Indianapolis, USA Swimming, my two colleagues, I just saw the CEO of gymnastics at lunch, and I was just with our uh, the CEO of USA Swimming. The one thing that I think that they're feeling is what I've always known is that Indianapolis hosts events and the community supports things, especially in the sporting arena like no other community in the country or around the world. So I know they're incredibly excited. One America is digging in the Sports Corp. I mean, the community is coming together. So I think you'll see really thrilling events for the swimming trials. And what's actually interesting is if you're able to get up close and personal to see some of the greatest athletes in the world in person, it's a whole lot different than seeing it on TV. So I know they're excited about being here. We're excited, not for the Olympic trials per se. I'll get back to that. But the state just built a wonderful facility and indoor track at the fairgrounds. So we just hosted a championship there this this weekend. And I had people from all over the country that are involved in USA track and field texting me saying, hey, I can see the indoor championships here in Indianapolis. The field, the facility was nice, you know, our community leaders. So I think Indianapolis is a really unique place um, as they'll host the all-star game. But having hosted the world championships in Eugene, Oregon, for the first time in the history of this sport, To see people compete in the states is really exciting. What's exciting for me is as we get up to and approach Paris, everybody's focused on what happens in the United States for LA 2028. So Paris is going to be wonderful, but it's a great catalyst. And for us, having all the communities across the country and Indianapolis, you know, kind of dig in the support because there are a lot of activities that happen right here in the state. But I can tell you they got a lot of fun things planned around the swimming trials some of them, I'd, he'd be really mad at me if I unveiled <laughs> right now, but I would encourage everyone up to, to go out and support and just know that these athletes have trained their entire life for a moment in time that happens every four years. And so any kind of support, whether you are buying a ticket to an event, whether you're donating to the organizations, whether you're cheering them on, you know, it really matters. It really makes a difference in the athletes' and the organization's uh, existence.
1: Well, we're super excited to have that energy in the city yet again. And so as we begin to wrap up, I want to, you know, we've talked a lot about the many different vantage points you've had as an industry leader in so many capacities and as a diverse leader in that regard, especially in the sports arena. But you've been and focused a lot of your time and energy in Indiana. So I want to ask you, what do you believe are some of the greatest advances Indiana companies have made as a collective with regard to diversity, equity and inclusion, not just in their corporate workforce, but at the leadership levels? And what are two or three tips or tools or resources that you'd suggest for any Indiana corporate leader who's really serious about continuing to make progress with respect to their diversity and inclusion in their corporate organization?
0: One of the things I will say growing up here, and I'm going to say this knowing that I'm going to leave someone out that will be mad at me, <laughs> but listen, I have to give so much respect, appreciation to those who have paved the way that are still in the community because without them, I wouldn't be here. And without you know the work we're trying to do, the younger generation wouldn't. But when you see the Tony Prathers of the world, or the Dr. Huddleston's, or the Jeff Harrison's, you know, ascend to leadership roles, or Jeanette Hill at the Lilly Endowment, you know, to me, it really is a signal that people have confidence in our community to lead important organizations. I think that what I'm encouraged by knowing many of the leaders in the community is that they do care about creating opportunities for more people. And I also know that many of the leaders in the city don't mind either standing up on principle or whether you have someone who's seen a lot of different vantage points like Tony Mason at the Urban League, right? They care deeply about the community. You know, Dennis Bland is CLD. It's interesting because what what I get to see is the progress and the opportunities that the leaders are creating, but at the same time, the willingness for us to reach across and educate people who may not know and to say, hey, there are more talented people in our community that are out there, give them a shot and, and, and those kind of things. I would say that, As a father of three 20-somethings, right, the young generation is changing. And everything from how they consume things to what their values are and what's important to them, it's much, much different. And so we have to lean in and we have to listen and we have to empower them. And I think some of the most encouraging, inspiring things for me that I get and it keeps me on my toes is to listen to the young people. You know, to listen to what's important, to see how they're doing things and to listen to what their needs are. And so I would just say that I say it all the time. um, We all have a shelf life. I know where I am in my career and what I'm focused on between now and the time that I move on is really trying to create that next wave, that next generation of people who are prepared to take over seamlessly and go well beyond what we could achieve. So I would just encourage, like I say all the time, for people to get out of their comfort zone, to expand their network, to listen even if it's painful to hear. And I say to people all the time, and I tell my kids, I say, hey, listen, you have to be really, again, I hate to use the word intentional, but thoughtful and intentional because the people who probably need to hear your message the most are not always the ones who are willing to listen. So for me, the tips, I would just say to expand, expand, get to know people. It's never too late to expand your network and get to know people and show up and be present in places that you haven't gone or you're not comfortable being.
1: Max, I thank you for all your time today. This has been a wealth of gems and nuggets of information and wisdom. Thank you for all you've contributed to our community and making it better for the next generation to pick up the torch and keep running forward. Thank you again to Max Siegel, and thanks to you for joining us on this 31st episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.